Every year, Bank of America Merrill Lynch comes out with a study they call Car Wars, which looks at all aspects of the automotive industry. John Murphy, the senior auto analyst with Bank of America, is the main author of the report. And on this week's show, he gives us his outlook. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine this week has been provided by RSM. challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax, and consulting for the middle market. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. You know, once a year, Bank of America Merrill Lynch puts out this study that they call Car Wars, and we've got the person who really directs that effort. John Murphy is on today's show. He's a senior analyst with Bank of America. John, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Also joining us today are Jeff Gilbert from WWJ News Radio 950 in Detroit, and David Welch from Bloomberg News. And great to have the both of you guys on board as well. Good to be here, John. So, John, let's start off. Uh, a couple of years ago, you came out with a forecast that said around 2021, 2022, the bottom was going to fall out of the U.S. car market. Right now, we're bumping up around 17 million new cars and trucks a year. You said then, and in fact, you just re-upped it. It's going to drop down to maybe 13 or 14 million, a huge drop in only a couple of years' time. Do you stand behind that? And if so, why do you see the drop? Yeah, no, absolutely. We're still we're still forecasting about a 13 to 14 million trough in around 2022, give or take. Right? We'll see exactly where where it hits. Um, what we've seen in the last two years really is retail demand has come off, down about three percent last year, down about five percent year to date. So it's really fleet that's helped out um, the, the total uh, in, a, in a big way. So I think that what we'll see is at some point the fleet buyers will kind of hit a wall. They'll have all the vehicles they need, and they won't buy more just because they're cheap. They just don't need to buy vehicles. So um, I think that's what we're, we're staring down in the barrel of. And you look at you know 280 million vehicles on the road, all-time peaks in zero to five-year-old vehicles. There's tons of inventory of miles that are available for people to drive as affordability is going against them. So I think everybody just hits pause. Is there a risk that if there was an event, which generally is what causes a recession, is some sort of global event that if, if something happens, that it could drop even more? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think if you, if you look at this in the extreme, because we have 280 million vehicles and this great fleet of young, young vehicles um, and vehicles are lasting longer, you do have the potential for some extreme, extreme downside. And pretty much you could sell no vehicles for a year and everybody would still be able to get from A to B. Bad for the economy, but, you know, you still wouldn't damage people's ability to get from A to B. But, John, what drives it down to 13. I mean, you're, you're talking 2010, 11 levels where the country was still clawing out of the financial crisis, yeah. which was a deep hole. I could see, I've seen forecasts saying 15 in that time, and uh, which is, even that's kind of alarming. What gets us down as low as 13? So I think as you look at um, what happened uh, from 2000 to 2008, you dropped from 17.4 to 13.2 to, um, to million in 2008. That was kind of the normal, you know, peak to trough decline, right? So 20 to 30% is a normal peak to trough decline. So we're basically looking for something right in, in the middle of that. 
um, you know, at the trough. So it's a capital goods replacement cycle with the consumer overlay, and we would imagine by the time we get into the early 2020s, you'd have some kind of recession going on in addition with that. Big question is, did the auto, does the auto industry cause a recession, or does this recession cause the trough in auto sales? And when you're looking at something that's 4% of GDP, there's a big circular reference there. So it's, you know, it's it, sort of one and the same almost. So how long is that trough before we start to come out of it? I, I you know, I think it's probably a, a year or two. I mean, I think you kind of pop back out like you, like you have in, in, in the past. John, as you know, around 2022, we could see anywhere from 80 to 100 battery electric vehicles in showrooms. There's about 15 of them today. You're predicting this wave, or you're not predict. there's this wave of EVs coming, just as you're predicting a big drop in the market. How might they play into that? Well, I mean, I think it's important when you look at EVs as they stand right now, particularly in the U.S., it's very different than what you have in, in, in Europe and China. It is more of a market-based approach, given what's going on with fuel economy and emission standards here in the U.S. So the automakers are going sort of higher line. You have the LEAF. Model 3 that is sort of lower priced, although the, the Model 3 is still, you know, going out at 55,000 bucks plus, um, that there's sort of a focus in sort of this luxury of 50 to 60,000 price point, and in some case, cases higher. That's where the automakers might be able to make a little bit of money, but that's a very small part of the market. So I think as you look at it, if you're selling a vehicle less than that, even in the next, you know, three to four years, you're going to be losing money. So that's why there won't be a lot of a lot of those volumes being being produced, and the consumers won't really be demanding that many of them because the price points will be fairly high. So, I think it'll be good progress, but because it's an expensive technology, it'll take time to really play out. Where, where do we have to get in terms of battery cost? Do you think before these cars start to make money? So right now, we're at, McKinsey says the average is somewhere north of $150 per kilowatt hour for the pack. So I think there's, there's, there's a, a lot of ways you can slice the costs on the EV, right? So if you're looking at a regular internal combustion engine vehicle right now, it's about $23,000 in content. A comparable sort of Model 3 um, or a, a, uh, a Chevrolet Bolt would be about $35,000 in, in total uh, parts content. So that gap of ba basically about $13,000 is mostly the battery. There's power electronics and some other stuff that, that, sh that shifts around there. But that's really the gap. So you need to reduce that cost in total uh, to get, you know, to sort of parity with a, a regular vehicle, uh, small crossover, midsize sedan right now. So there's a lot of work to do. You could call it 100, uh, you know, 100 bucks per kilowatt hour, 50 bucks a kilowatt hour. There's a lot of things that are moving on in there. And I think what the industry is just now starting to realize is the efficiencies of uh, the efficiency of the electric motor is the next thing that really needs to be improved in addition to battery cost and power density, and that kind of will help alleviate some of the, some of the stress there. So it's, it's a ways off, but there's about $13,000 of incremental content right now, at least in, an, in, a, in a comparable quick EV. So it's going to be, you know, there's a lot of work to do there. Well, you, you've got a market that's settling down. You've got a lot of competitors in EVs. What does that mean for Tesla? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of things to consider in Tesla, even beyond, beyond, right. beyond the competition. It's self-funding, the competition coming in, and some of their inability to execute is leaving the window and the door open for this, these competitors to come in, as Elon would say, very slowly, but they're actually com coming in, and they're coming in at high price points for the similar luxury buyers that are, that are buying, that are buying uh, Teslas right now. So, yes, I mean, I think that's going to be um, a real challenge for Tesla, particularly as you get over the next, you know, two to five years as a a lot of this product is coming out. A lot of it's coming from the German, the German Lux manufacturers, and that those will be real competitive with Teslas. Is the Tesla brand strong enough to uh, to withstand that challenge? 
You know, I, I think we're I think we're going to see. I think the the one big thing that you've got to admit that that Elon's done is he's created a great following um, around around that brand. And if you were to think about the two things that have um, a lot of value in that company intrinsically, it's the brand and the land in Fremont, right? I mean, those are two things that intrinsically have a lot of value. But so do the cars. I mean, he, Tesla's been able to do things technically that nobody else has been able to match. Not even right now. Not even Audi or BMW or Mercedes Over the have year caught updates. up. Over-the-year yes. updates yeah. is just one example. But there's a lot of technology in their car that uh, the best of the other premium or luxury makers haven't caught up to Tesla on. Well, I mean, if you white sheet a vehicle and start with the, you know, the battery being the, you know, the, the foundation of the structure between the, um, you know, the, the, you know, the, between the floor plan, um, you do have a lot of advantages and you have a lot more flexibility than folks that are wor working with uh, existing architectures. I think what we'll see with the next generations of EVs coming out of uh, the other uh, traditional manufacturers, they'll head in that direction. They'll work on over-the-air over updates. But there's a lot of risk in some of this, this new technology. And, you know, some of the things that are happening with Tesla vehicles are being forgiven and kind of pushed to the side that you can't necessarily have, and have happen with regular vehicles, particularly with over-the-air updates, the security risk of that on, you know, a 100,000 or 500,000 or a million or 8 million vehicles like you'd see at a, at a GM is, is a lot of risk to take. You're leaving a door wide open on security. Well, and, and the conventional car companies really aren't equipped to lock it down right now. It's not that they can't, but they get some of these systems, these computing systems from suppliers internally, and you're talking three or four different computers and software systems that can talk to each other, but that's, from what I'm told, several different gates where there are cybersecurity risk. Tesla does it in-house. It's one of the reasons they can lock it down. Rivian is going to do it in-house. That's how they can lock it down. Yeah. That's why the newer companies can, can do this. I also have a David's tinfoil hat theory on this, which is that <laughs> when I go to the dealer, because the check engine light is on, they do this diagnostic in there, and in five minutes they come out and say, yeah, give me $115. They didn't do it really anything except maybe, refl maybe reflash it, and I go home, and it's fine. That's quick and easy, easy service money for those guys, and if you can do that over the air... That cuts money from them, and the, and the automakers have already crushed the margin on selling a new car for these guys. They're making all their money on parts and service. You start to take that away with over-the-air updates, you know, that relationship gets even more tense. It does get tough. Hey, let's talk about all these uh, mergers and acquisitions going on. We just saw fairly recently Fiat Chrysler tried to make a run of partnering with Renault. That collapsed. Maybe they're going to make another run, try to make it happen again. Where do you see this going, John? And, and what I wonder, too, is... Does Fiat Chrysler really have to find a partner? You know, if you line them up with Honda, for example, they're kind of similar in size, revenue, and profitability. I mean, there's some variation, but no one's talking about Honda needing a partner. Everybody says FCA has to have one. Well, I mean, I think, I think we've all been looking at the industry for a long time, and economies of scale is sort of uh, what uh, we, all, we all bleed and, and, and focus on. So any combination of a couple million units with another couple million units theoretically should drive real cost savings and, and synergies. The problem is when those are doubling down on a market that is not profitable pretty much for anybody in the mass market, being Europe, the combination seems a little suspect. I also think there is a very significant issue that could arise and doesn't get a lot of, a lot of airtime with... Fiat Chrysler becoming less and less of a U.S. company, an Italian-French company, and I, you know, kind of a funny status. You could fit 21,000 croissants in the back of a Ram pickup truck, and I'm sure GM, GM and Ford might use that in their ad campaigns, uh, uh, you know, about about sort of you know the, the truck wars. So I do think there's there's there is a there was a lot of risk in in that deal that doesn't um, necessarily kind of make a lot of sense to, to us. But over time, I mean, they need they need to get a luxury brand that works really well. Alfa and Maserati are 
very you know so-so and they haven't really been able to get them over over the hump so anybody that has a good luxury brand or a good asia pack presence might be a good fit for uh, for fiat chrysler but for right now i think the renault deal was we'll see where ultimately this ultimately lands uh, but not necessarily a well a well-cooked deal is the Ford Volkswagen pattern maybe better for them to team up with somebody on certain projects as opposed to a full merger? Well, I mean, I, I think potentially for now to get some near, near-term benefits, but I think over time, you know, in addition to needing a, uh, I mean, a, a luxury brand, they need AV and EV technology that they've woefully under, un, under invested in, as well as, as well as a Finco. So, um, you know, I think what Ford is doing with VW makes a lot of sense on the light commercial vehicle side. Um, but that is sort of a, a narrow, you know, a narrow focus. They, they need a lot. They need to bring a lot more to the table in their portfolio. And for those who don't know Finco, you're talking about their oh, own sorry. captive finance company. Yes. yes. Yeah. So, John, is there really a correlation between total volume and operating margins? I, I, I ran the numbers a few years ago, and there kind of wasn't a great correlation. So the, the, the correlation is highest in truck, you know, body-on-frame truck volume and, and, and luxury volume. That's really where everybody's making their money right now. So total volume is, is a little bit of a, a misnomer. But you know, there are economies of scale and certain technology that having large volume will, will help with over time, particularly as we look at a whole new powertrain development as well as a whole new driving system around autonom- autonomous. So um, I do think some of the scale uh, will make sense and will be necessary over the, over the long run. But really, it's trucks and, and luxury that people should be focused on. So that's my question. It was related to John's is, or maybe if you Jeffrey asked the question, do players like Honda and Fiat Chrysler really need partners if really what they need is scale in the new technologies? Because look, I'd, I'd rather have, I'd rather have Fiat Chrysler's limited scale with the Ram pickup business and the Jeep business than, you know, a, a lot of other players who are concentrated in Europe, concentrated in certain Asian markets that. Just aren't that high margin. So I think if you if you could um, limit and close down the European business for Fiat Chrysler, you actually have a wonderful business here in North America that might be a, a good a good stand standalone business. So I mean that you know that could be a good long term solution. I'm not sure the Italian government will ever really agree to something like that or the Works Council. So that that'll be a, a tough a tough thing to execute on. Um, but you know I mean a, a Honda um, has got a lot going for it. I mean they're kind of somewhat in the truck business with with crossovers. The uh, CRV along with the RAV4, I think it was in the late 90s, they created the, the crossover segment, so they've done pretty well there. Um, but Honda is, is, is subscale, and I think that as you look at sort of the investments that they're making going forward, they're done in a, in a lot of cases with partnership with GM, right? I mean, the investment in crews um, and, and the sort of their partnership around fuel cells, some of their, you know, class, their future-looking uh, uh, technology really is teaming up with some of the, the biggest players in the industry and leveraging that, that, that scale of the combined entities, which may come back to sort of the, the VW Ford type of partnerships as, as the way that things will go. Yeah, what would, <clears throat> to uh, shift a little bit, part of your Car Wars presentation takes a look at product cadence, things like that. Who, who has the lead going forward the next couple of years? Who are we to watch who has some products uh, in the chute ready to go that uh, is going to make them successful? So if you look at the next four years, Honda is, is definitely leading, leading the charge, right? They've got the, by far the best replacement rate uh, well above the industry average, the high end. Uh, GM is at the low end, but they've just launched their, their, their pickups and their SUVs and had two years of great crossover. So they're kind of in a little bit of a low, but they'll pick back up sort of maybe even one year out in the study. But I also think one of the really interesting standouts in the very short term and this year and next year is Ford. Um, and I think a lot of the issues that they've had um, and the questions about the direction the company is going in may 
be put by the wayside or you know put to the side as you look at the launch of the Ranger just coming in just starting really at the end of last year beginning of this year uh, you've got the um, the Explorer you know later this year you have the Lincoln corollary you know to that um, and then you have and then you have the escape as well and the Lincoln corollary to that next year you've got the Bronco and the F-150 that Bronco and that Ranger are going to be potentially a couple billion dollar profits wing for Ford right I mean like actually I mean you know it might be two billion dollars plus um, it's a big deal for them to get into that small or sort of mid-sized pickup market and have a real Wrangler fighter out there. And that's, you know, I think that's going to really serve them well. Let's talk tariffs. Boy, have they been in the news. Uh, who knows what's going to a absolutely happen, but how do you figure this into your forecasting? Because I'm sure you've got multiple scenarios. Well, I'll have to check my watch and my yeah. Twitter, Twitter feed because I think it just changed in the last five minutes, John. Um, so, 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 I'm not, so I, you know, it, it changes by the minute. Um, you know, as we factor this in, the, the end game, I think, is, is really for autos is Section 232. And the fact that autos have been deemed a matter of national security um, gives the president and the administration a lot of leverage. And I think when we get the answers, remember we have a, a deadline sometime in mid-November on, on this for, you know, the bilateral negotiations are going on right now, but a deadline in mid-November as to how this will all be decided, whether we'll get 25% tariffs on all autos and auto parts imported to the U.S. or they'll be country, country by country. Um, but I think the end game really is to block a big dump from China on a couple of million units because the U.S. can't afford to have another couple million units capacity uh, dedicated to it or, or dumped in, into the market, um, as well as getting some kind of deal with Europe. And that's sort of outside my pay grade on ag versus autos. Uh, the chicken tax, right? We've had, we've had this actually actually happen, happen before. So right now, it's, it's, I think that's really our, our key focus. I think the important thing to remember is right now, everybody's hitting pause on big capital decisions. They are resourcing you know, where they potentially can um, away, from, away from China and, and markets that they're um, you know, they're, they're, you know, that are subject to tariffs. Um, and the third thing is an increased localization of, of capacity. And all of that, whether, you know, we get a perfect solution, however you want to define it, means there's going to be increased costs over time. That might be really high increased costs of a couple thousand bucks, or there would be some inefficiency in the supply chain. Is Mexico exempted from the, uh, the 25% tariff? Um, it depends, once again, on, on, on the minute. But the USMCA, as it's structured, as we know it right now, has side letters for uh, Canada and Mexico. So the USMCA, if put it into place, would exempt Canada and Mexico, as it stands right now, two, from, two from, yeah, out of the two, 232. So you want to set some odds here? It's, it's bookie John Murphy. What are the listen, odds well, on listen, us getting 25% Bank of America, I'm not allowed to, allowed to yeah. you know, come, uh, okay. come, come on in betting terms. But from, from, a, from, a, from a stock and probability perspective, I do think there's very significant risk that China will be subject to large tariffs. Right now, it's not that big. I mean, it's, it's small potatoes in the grand scheme of imports, about $10 billion of, of total imports, about 60,000 vehicles. Big numbers, but you know, in the grand scheme of the auto industry, those are those are small numbers. So that's not uh, that tricky. I think what um, is going to get a little bit tricky is the discussion between Europe and the U.S. on ag ag for autos, and um, that could result in 25% tariffs on on all vehicles, and we'll see a greater localization uh, in the U.S. Those are the two hot. Those are the, two hot spots. the German what? companies have to bring production here, yep. the, because with China, we, we, there really aren't many vehicles coming. Very few vehicles coming from China to the U.S. Right now. About 60,000. Right, yes. right now. But there's plans to bring in a lot if there's no tariffs. And the very significant risk is you've got a very large market that is slowing down. is going to have a lot of excess capacity. We all know their vehicles aren't necessarily ready for prime time in the U.S. just yet. But in the next five to ten years, they might be. So that excess capacity may be looking for a home. And we don't want the U.S. to be the home for that because that will just destroy the industry here. What happens if USMCA doesn't pass? 
Because it's an election um, year next year and it's going to be hotly debated. So we could revert back to NAFTA, we could revert to nothing, we could revert, you know, and, and everything could be torn up, we could revert back to MFN, which would be, you know, a couple percent, you know, tariffs, um, or there might be, you know, a whole new acronym, acronym that, that, that comes up. I, I, you know, it's, it's, you know, it would be way up in the air. I think the odds are that you're going to see USCMCA negotiated and, and, and settled sometime, you know, in the, in the next, probably by the end of the year. And you're talking about the China tariffs, the others, possibly leading to more localization. Isn't that what the administration wants? You aren't kidding. That's, exa that's exactly what they want. You have two and a half million units of net imports to the North, the North American market. When you look at that, that equates to about 10 assembly facilities, which would be 35,000 jobs off, off the jump from the, those plants. You know, 10 to 1 multiplier would be about 350,000 jobs um, directly from, you know, that. There would be even greater multiplier around that. Then if you think about parts, about 60% of parts are imported, right? So it would be something of that magnitude, if not greater. So you could get, you could be looking at a million jobs structurally brought back to the, the U.S. That's a big, big deal. And if things cost a lot more for a while, some people think that's a, a you know, an okay outcome to get those jobs structurally back here. It's a question of, whether you would really create that many jobs, though, and that's really where this gets a little, a little, a little bit fuzzy, and the damage would definitely be done to the economy. Speaking of jobs and negotiations, there's a union contract that comes up this year. Well, what's your outlook? What do you think the industry needs from the union? What do you think the union's going to ask for? Well, I mean, I, there's been great collaboration for the last few, the last few contracts. The UAW um, and the companies have really, you know, worked hard together to create a, a healthy and profitable industry. Um, so I think when we go through this next round of negotiations, the union is going to recognize that they have been you know, real team players and are going to need you know, higher job security, um, however that, you know, that plays out for their entry-level entry level workers, um, as well as potentially a, a, you know, wage and benefit inflation. I think those are probably the, the two big things, but the biggest is, is, is jobs. And when you think about USMCA, um, that whole idea of having higher U.S. or North America content you know, in parts and, and labor is really, I think, something that the union will try to lean on in this contract and lean on in, in, in D.C. to really, really push. So I'm not sure exactly how that would play out in the contract, but I think that that whole idea of, of getting more labor uh, for the industry here in the U.S. is something they'll be on page with, too. Do you, do you think the UAW understands GM's reason for closing the plants that are closed, and instead of, I mean, they have to say publicly they want to keep these plants open, but do you think they understand why GM's closing them and instead will push behind the scenes for something in return, or do you think it's going to be a drawn-out battle to try to keep those plants open? So I, I, I think over time that, you know, the solution that they're, that they're finding with the other company that they're selling a plant to, and I believe it's wor Workhorse, um, you know, is, is, a, is, a, is a temporary solution. The folks at the UAW are incredibly sophisticated in their understanding of how the industry works and, and the economics of the, the, the entire business. So I think over time they, they do understand why certain costs and jobs need to be cut, but hopefully we'll look for reallocation someplace else. And I think that's what they're really going to push for behind the scenes. I do think it'll be a significant push. But the part they're angry about, particularly in the case of GM, is you have a blazer being made in Mexico. Now, we know the volume there isn't enough to keep Wardstown open. But they have a bunch of factories in the U.S. that are uh, underutilized right now. The UAW, I don't think, is going to stand for any more cuts. In fact, they're going to want to see investment in jobs and vehicles coming back to the U.S. or just new vehicles being put here. Um, do they understand why, uh, forget about the public rhetoric, 
do you think internally understand why the Chevy Blazer is being built in Mexico? I think I think given you know the the hourly labor cost versus the cost of, of the vehicle and the segment that it's in. I mean, you have to understand you know where it needs to be made to be profitable so the company can survive for for, for the long run. But I do think as you, as you look at the massive investment that GM is making, particularly in crews and and you know EVs. Um, specifically, there could be some very significant offset. Remember, they closed Europe, which is a billion-dollar money loser. That billion dollars of losses are basically being reallocated and funding the development of crews, which is predominantly here uh, in the U.S. So they might not be directly manufacturing jobs, but they're jobs in, in, in total. So I do think that the GM is, is being a pretty good corporate citizen in, in this and reallocating capital to support jobs here in the U.S. Hey, we haven't talked about autonomous cars. You brought up GM <laughs> Cruise. What do you think? Uh, is the well, you know, you know Alex Partners came out last year and said billions are going to get wasted on this, but everybody's pouring money into it in, anyway. How do you see it coming out? Well, I mean, in any new technology, there's going to be a, lo a lot of winners and losers inside of a company, and then you know, among among sort of the, the landscape. So I do think there will be a lot of money that gets you know spent um, not in spurious in a spurious way, but you know, in, in an effort to try to uh, push this forward. Um, I think the, the the idea or the dream of level four and five has been pushed out pretty significantly, and that really started to occur really over the last 18 months or so. I think it was, um, you know, there, there was kind of this great, great dream. Uh, level two and three, uh, two plus and into three kind of, will we'll create a lot of safety here uh, in the near term. But this level four and uh, five AMA dream is, is, is far dated. It does create the ability for the industry, I think, to do three important things. And this is where this gets really interesting. It's to reduce the cost per mile right below a dollar, which is if you buy a new vehicle right now, you're probably paying that or maybe even a, a little bit less, increasing the demand or the ability for people to drive, meaning a 90-year-old you're pulling the keys away from, you no longer have to do that, and they actually you know, can be a driver. You can even have a five-year-old send them to a soccer game on, on, on their own. And the third thing is increasing the speed of travel, right? Those are three things that the industry has really kind of not fixed or actually improved for, for, for decades. And I think when you get to level four and five, there really will be this potential to advance those three things, cheaper cost, higher demand, uh, and faster speed of travel. And that will change the dynamics of the entire country and the economy. We're down to the very end, but do you think that this uh, automated mobility on demand can really generate the revenue? Uh, I think in the right markets, the right place, and the right time, yes, it can be a very profitable business. Ooh, so stay tuned, watch that. John Murphy, thank you so much for coming on. We have covered the waterfront of topics. I mean, I'm sure we could have gotten into more detail on all of them, but man, we sure covered a lot. And I really want to thank you for being able to just jump in on all different kinds of topics like that. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, David Welch and Jeff Gilbert, thank you guys too. It's thank been you. a, a thanks, great, great conversation here. And of course, as I always say, I want to thank all of you for having tuned in. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine this week has been provided by RSM. Prepare for challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax and consulting for the middle market.